This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook. Today is January 14th, 2023. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio. Yeah, hey there, Brian. I'm Frank Dunn, and I was at Hofstra Radio from 1967 till 1978. Okay, and what shows and programs did you work on at the station? Well, most of my time, I was I was a studio engineer and master control down underneath the, the little theater that you've probably heard so much about. And I also did uh, remotes from on the campus, like the football field and the uh, Calkins Gymnasium basketball games, as well as being on the studio end of, of remotes that were really remote. Uh, I didn't have a, I didn't have a show. I just had different slots that I did, different assignments. Uh, I never tried to be an announcer, although I probably could have been, but it didn't work out. Okay. Okay. Did you have any titles or positions of management at the station? No, I was just, uh, I was just a, a, a board engineer. You'd probably call me a board op now. That would, that's what it's reduced for. We were called engineers. So I never, ha- I never had a title because I never went to the school. That was one of the things that we were, was beautiful about uh, WVHC at the time was that uh, you didn't have to go to the school. You didn't have to even be in college, as, as you heard from some of the, some of the other folks. that did. I didn't even go there. I went to St. John's. So uh, I just went there and had different slots and did different assignments and uh, stayed until I moved to Connecticut. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, you, you've alluded to the, the station being under the Little Theater, and I'm sure we'll hear more about the details of that. But uh, I guess I really want to know, if you're, if you're not going to Hofstra as a, as a matriculating student, how did you wind up there and how did you wind up at the radio station? Well, I went to St. John's, and St. John's did not have a broadcast uh, radio station. They had a campus radio station. Hofstra had a real live 320-watt station. So during the marathon, when Hofstra had decided they, they couldn't afford the 50 grand or whatever it was for WVHC to operate, uh, I went down there one night to donate some, some money to the cause, with the motive actually of getting involved into in the station and uh and i sneaked in that way uh i sneaked in and then a couple of days i came back with an idea that i would be in the parking lot and i would wash people's car windows if they were to come in uh, and donate money to the station and i just became like uh, george costanza i just became part of the background there, uh, and I drifted in. So you didn't have to be uh, you didn't have to be a student. Uh, there was a, one fellow who was a play-by-play announcer, and he did a great jazz show. Fred Motley, uh, he was a bus driver, probably in his forties, for one of the Long Island bus companies. Wow, that's so interesting. So, were you in in high school? Were you listening to the station? How did you come to know Hofstra Radio WVHC? Uh, I heard that uh, they had a marathon. I read in the paper that they were having a marathon and that uh, they were, you know, on the verge of getting closed down. And uh, uh, I saw an opportunity 
when there's change, there is often opportunity. I, I later learned and, and I saw that was a chance to maybe get in, get involved in radio. I always wanted to be involved in radio. Uh, I was a big fan of the New York radio stations, WABC, WPLJ, and uh, I always wanted to, to, to do it. So even though I was an accounting major at St. John's, uh, that's how I jumped in. Wow. Okay. So a couple questions here. I'm going to, I'm going to throw together. Uh, how old were you at the time? Where you, were you living and what were the stations and the DJs that you were listening to at the time? Okay. Well, I was, let's see, I was 21, uh, when I went into, went to Hofstra, uh, the rate to the radio station, the WVHC. And uh, I, like so many people, were listening to 77 WABC in New York City. But there was also WMCA, the good guys. And there was, uh, there was also WPLJ, uh, New York's best rock and, uh, and FM station. And there were also the local stations like WGBB in, uh, in Merrick, in Freeport License, uh, where some of, our, some of the people who were working had professional jobs there part-time at WGBB. Yeah, there's so much overlap uh, between the two. So, oh, this is this is so interesting that, so you weren't necessarily thinking about radio or broadcasting necessarily as a career, but you were interested and that's how you wound up at Hofstra because of the, uh, after you saw the article in Newsday. Right, well, I was interested as a career, but uh, I already was like one, year away from a career so i stayed with my with my uh accounting career but i wanted to be i wanted to be inside of radio i wanted to be making it happen what was it that appealed to you about working at a radio station because you said you didn't want to necessarily be on the air so what was it that you were hoping to to do in radio well i think i ultimately wanted to be dan ingram and i didn't have the confidence to uh to really make an effort to try to be an announcer, even though I was told by Bob Dunn, uh, Steve Rosenfeld, when I first got to the station, like within a day, that I had that I had the voice for uh, for radio. I just didn't I didn't push it. Hmm. Um, so you uh, when you get there, I guess there were, was there training to become an engineer, a board operator, or was it sort of sit here and watch what's going on? How did that work? Well, as I was sitting there being invisible in master control, uh, observing, you know, because I wasn't committed, I was like trying to be invisible. Uh, I watched what the engineer did from behind them. Didn't look that, didn't look that complicated. Uh, but one night, uh, the machines were loaded and uh, the uh, the board op was not was not had left the left the studio to go you know do fool around with her boyfriend or something, uh, and uh, and the cart ended, and I knew the next cart was in the machine, so I pushed the button for the next cart, and uh, wouldn't you know, beginner's luck. Uh, the cart that had been on the air and the carts were supposed to stop at the end uh, when they re-queued. Well, the one didn't. 
So all of a sudden we've got, hi, this is Johnny Carson going on again over the cart that I had punched up. And, uh, and the, the engineer ran back in the room and, and uh, fixed it because I, I didn't know how to deal with that situation. And, and I think there was some, there was some training uh, after that. After that. Uh, but uh, I you know, had the general idea. I had a baptism by fire. <laughs> Oh my goodness, my my stomach is a knots hearing that because that's 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 the anxiety dream that that hangs with you for for years. You know whether it's whether it's dead air or you can't make things operate properly. This is this is your your baptism, your first time uh, pushing a button and and things are going haywire. Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, you always remember those because even though there was three hundred and twenty watts, it didn't matter if anybody was listening. The training is. You do it right all the time. Hmm. Um, I want to go back a little bit uh, in talking about the the studios and facilities uh, at at the time in the office. So I, I guess if you're if you're listening to these radio stations, and these are these are classic, well known radio stations. Did you have a vision in your mind of what a radio station would look like? And then when you got to WVHC, how did expectations meet reality? Well, I guess uh, we, we didn't have any pictures or anything. There was no internet or anything, so we really didn't know what these stations looked like. But we had, I had been over to WGBB a couple of times uh, and had, had the, the DJ let us, let us in to observe him uh, doing the work. So uh, the, the Hofstra station, did, it, it, was, it was not disappointing at all. I've heard some folks say it was, uh, it was uh, less, less than neat. Uh, yeah, I mean, there was a shag rug, so God knows what's in there, but, uh, I mean, it, it had the, it had what you needed to produce a show. Okay. Okay. So, um, I want to double back again. I meant to ask this before when you, when you showed up for that, that fundraising drive, was that at the station at the little theater or was there an office somewhere else or, or what was that? No, it was, it was downstairs. Uh, under the little theater, uh, that's where, that's basically where the the thing operated. I don't think they had the offices at Memorial Hall till after that. So basically, that was mm-hmm. WVHC, and that's where I went down. And I, and I think, I think it was Jeff Krauss that uh, you know I said I was going to empty my wallet. Uh, he said, "No, just give us like twenty dollars. That would be good." Uh, I think it was Krauss, but I, I. I uh, I wasn't looking up. I was looking at my shoes. <laughs> I was trying to sneak in. <laughs> was it was it a crowded scene at the time? Were there a lot of people, or was it just Jeff and and perhaps whoever was on the? There end? were there were several people there. Of course, uh, I, I don't know who they were. Uh, I don't remember who exactly they were, but uh, they did let me. I said, "Can I see the station?" And they let me go sit in master control and observe for a while and i and i decided how long that would be appropriate for me to stay there so i left but uh, you know they were welcoming but there was it was a time of there was a time of stress because it could have been it could have been all over mm. yeah I, I a number of people have have talked about this and i wonder if if uh it wouldn't be fair to ask you to tell the mood but like you know, were people hopeful? Were they anxious? Were they walking around 
smoking cigarettes and pacing? You know, was it, you know, what was the, the mood during this fundraiser? Were people thinking we're going to get it done or were they worried? People were, people were very worried. They were very worried because the, nobody knew that going on in the background was, uh, I think it was Jeff Krause uh, working on a deal with the Hempstead Public Schools to give them airtime, which was not, which was before our airtime, you know, so it didn't conflict with the airtime. We didn't know that that was going on in the background. And that's really what, what saved the station was the funding from, uh, from the Hempstead Public Schools. Hmm. Um, there's so many things that I'm learning and we're all learning through this process of, of things that Jeff Krause did behind the scenes or in conversations uh, to keep the station afloat, to expand it, to, to focus its goals. Um, so you show up there, you're 21 years old, you're hopeful to get into radio. I think at the time, Jeff would, wouldn't have been much older than you. He would have been probably in his late 20s. Would that be yeah, right? He, yeah, he was, yeah, no, he wasn't, he wasn't real. Nobody was really old there. Right. You know, Jeff, Jeff was in his probably mid to, mid to late 20s. You know, his batch of people, his batch of people, uh, Dave Lamble, uh, Gary Armstrong, uh, Dave Wieser, uh Steve Rosenfeld, Bob Dunn, you know, that... That group of people, they even lived at, at some rooming house, uh, the Cantro Hilton, they, they called it. They, they were like a little bit older than, than I was and, and the, the current group of seniors that was getting out of Hofstra and, go, and going on to, uh, you know, different things in radio. Like Gary Armstrong wound up in Boston and Steve Rosenfeld was at GBB, but he also became, I think it was, uh, you know, biggie with the uh, uh New York Times. Hmm. Um, I just I just find it fascinating that that the, the Jeff that I knew when I joined the station when I was eighteen years old would have been about fifty or years old or so, and and obviously he was the grown up in the room. But that at the time, at twenty eight years old, let's say he's the grown up in the room and he's the guy with the vision. That just to me at my age now in perspective, it's like that's fascinating that that he was able to to be the leader of this fledgling station yeah he was a he was a very responsible person you know he had uh, he had good vision he had tremendous discipline and uh you know he knew he knew his stuff and even though a lot of us thought he was pretty scary you know i became i became friends with him and would be at his house a couple of days a couple of nights a week hanging out uh doing things but yeah he he was fairly young hmm. a number of people have said that that uh you know jeff was focused on the the good of the entire station and if you were willing to invest your time and energy in the entire station he would welcome you in if you were just there to do your thing that was fine but if you were willing to to buy into the the whole product he welcomed you in as as a as a friend and colleague would that be right yeah oh, absolutely yeah Yep, the word absolutely gets overused, but absolutely. <laughs> um, I, this is so interesting to me because um, obviously you're with the station for a number of years and, and, and you must have been pretty good to be working with so many people over time. But when you first went there, you were so uh, self-effacing and so unsure. And you, you said, you know, I'm looking down at my shoes and I didn't I wanted to be in the background, so on and so forth. 
And for a lot of us, it's this weird dynamic of, I'm not really sure I can do this. And yet I want to, and I'm, I'm taking a risk. I'm taking a chance of putting myself out there. Were you aware of that at the time? And, and how did you work through that? Yeah, I was aware that I knew, I knew nothing. And, uh, and, and, but I wanted, I wanted to do this, this thing. I wanted to participate in this, in this, uh, profession where there's, where the objectives are to do everything right all the time, no dead air, no screw ups, no laughing, no, no laughing. And even if they have set fire to the news copy while you are reading it, okay, you are not allowed to crack up. So the, I was into the discipline of the whole thing too, because it was tremendously, you had to be tremendously disciplined because people were out to make you crack up. <laughs> So was that an actual thing? Did someone try to pull that off or is that just a, a, an I've example? Seen, I've, uh, seen, I've seen that. I saw that. Uh, and the guy just read faster. Um, <laughs> you got to read faster. Uh, and, and the uh, instances where the, you got a young guy like Tommy Curley when he was, he was brand new freshman and he's, He's trying to be a staff announcer and read the weather or something, and you figure out a way to get into his headphones and play a goof tape, you know, hey, pooey, you know, while he's while he's trying to read the copy, and he doesn't know that that's not on the air. You know, so. Okay. <laughs> so so it was a um, uh, respectful hazing, I guess. Perhaps we could say it's a. Uh, uh, it's an initiation to to say that you're, you're you're in you're part of the crew, but we're going to mess with. That's you. right. That's right. Wow, wow, that's something else. So so here you are. You you show up and and you go through this nightmare scenario the first time where the cart keeps playing and you figure that I, I guess there's some amount of training. What are you ready to be on the air? Do you remember your first time running a show by yourself or anything from training that stuck with you from those early days? Yeah, there was uh, there was. There was a fellow named George Berger who was a student there, and he was such a tremendously talented guy. He went on to work at WABC as an engineer, and he designed studios, and and he, he was just tremendous. And he, he taught us the hard way. You know, we would have, you know, the hours that you weren't on the air. You know, so say Saturday morning at 10 o'clock, the station wasn't on the air. So you came down, and everything everything was was set up and you practiced, uh, and he did everything he could to, to defeat you, uh, including turning down the master on the board and switching all the, the toggles on the pots. You know, he, he made it hard he said, get on the air, you know, get on the air, get something going through that monitor. And, uh, you know, sometimes it took like, you know, 10 seconds to figure out how to get something on the air. But 10 seconds is like 10 years in real time because you know, when, you, when you're working in radio, you realize how much time, like 10 seconds really is. You can, you can get a lot done if you don't panic. And that's what George was so big on teaching us, like don't panic. Uh, but they made, it, they, they made it really tough and we fought our way through it and we became better. And as you, know, as you, went, as you, went, as you went further on into doing it, um, you made fewer mistakes, and if you made a new mistake, you learned something else. 
but yeah, there was good training. And I think it was a couple of weeks before I was allowed to, to, uh, to engineer for say, uh, Alan Combs, who was, who became a famous, famous guy, uh, talk show mm-hmm. host. And, uh, he was a junior at Malvern high school and he had a Sunday, a Saturday afternoon show at the station. So that's where I started. I think he was my first victim. Wow. So you were operating the board for Alan, who had already been on the air, I assume. He had had a show that was going. Right. He, yeah. This kid from uh, from Malvern High School, very talented guy, young and lanky. Uh, he, yeah, he was he was existing and and I, I was his engineer. And it was not a threatening, scary environment. But after you after got the hang of it uh, with, you know, two turntables and three cart machines, sometimes two cart machines, but but if WABC was getting rid of some some equipment, we were beneficiaries of it sometimes. But you know, two turntables, three cart machines, and uh, and the announcer's mic. You know, that was your universe. What was the show that he was hosting? Was it a, a particular kind of music program? Yeah, it, I think it was a, a general type of music, not rock and roll, uh, but right. it was like an easy, easier listening type. I don't think it even had a title, but it was. Because the whole thing was the whole afternoon was called Project Weekend at that point, uh, and it had its own jingle package. Uh, Project Weekend, Dubop, Dubabi, Dubao. But uh, you know, but that that was my first that was my first uh, assignment was working with Alan, and it worked out fine. I never had anybody that I worked with where we were adversaries. That's that that's that's good to hear. I I love the the image of this again. You know, not to harp on on Jeff being so young, but you're not the typical new student because you're 21. You've already been through a couple of years of college, and you're engineering for a kid who's in high school. Yeah, right. I just it's just one of these fascinating things about the way things work. And you know, if you're willing to put in the time and you have something to say, you know, get get on the air and you're encouraged and all these resources to to help you out. That's just. It's just such an interesting picture in my mind. Thank you for sharing yeah, that. He has a show and I don't. <laughs> right. Well, I, I think it'd be fair to say Alan was not the typical teenager of the time. No, no. He was he was he was good and it was interesting to watch him, you know, progress. So, so you spent a couple of weeks training, and George put you through. I'm, I'm picturing like a flight simulator situation, you know, the way you described it before. That you know, here are all the scenarios. Deal with them. So you go through this training, and you go through a little bit of practice, and you're on the air with Alan, and on the weekends. When do you think you felt really comfortable behind the board and working in the studio that you could handle whatever came up? When did you feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do this for a while? Yeah, I, th- I think it was a co- I think it was a couple of months. Uh, you know, there were no huge, huge, mis- huge mistakes or anything to learn from. Uh, it became it became not routine, but it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be. You know, you were queuing up records, and uh, you know, you were queuing up records. You were taking direction from the announcer. The announcer would come out because you were in separate rooms. You know, there was no, there was a glass between you. So the the announcer had to come out with every LP he wanted to play, every album he wanted to play. And sometimes they would come out and they would want to hear while one record is on the air and maybe that record has 30 seconds left. They would say they wanted to hear cut three of the new song in cue through the cue speaker. 
and I would have to remind them that the record was was going to end. But 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 that those were the the, the basic uh, crisis situations that you could have ever have. Otherwise, I'll, I'll have cut three on this. And the best thing you had best thing you had to do was to remember that if for some reason you had one record ended and you had uh, you know both of them on the air. Both turntables spinning at the same time. That you better make sure that the tone arm you take off is not the one that you just put on the air. Those were the right. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. The anxiety. I feel it. It's it's that 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 nervous thing. Don't don't make the mistake. But I I, I get the sense that that you get used to that pretty quickly, and that 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 last second throwing the record on that that becomes like you said routine. It becomes part of of what you're able to do with a little bit of experience part of the ex- part of the excitement of the of the job no matter what happens you got to do it right and and did it feel like you were putting on a professional radio show like you might hear on WMCA or WABC did it feel to you like you were doing professional quality work at WVHC oh definitely Definitely, we were we were there to you know even though it was three hundred and twenty watts and I heard heard one of one of the podcasts of someone mentioned that they you know if they made a mistake they didn't feel so bad I, I if I made a mistake I felt bad even if there was like just the birds standing on top of the transmitter tower were listening uh, you had to do it right yeah and that was it it, it was a perfect it's it is a professional radio station. Absolutely. Um, now, getting back to the sort of social aspect, your situation is unique that you're not going, you're not taking classes at Hofstra, you're not going to school there. And a lot of us, whatever the generation was, once we get involved in the station, we're not necessarily spending as much time on our studies as we are at the radio station. Did you find a conflict between the time you're spending at WVHC and pursuing your studies at St. John's? Uh, no, no, I didn't. Um... Because basically, you. <laughs> basically uh, you know, I had one, I had one or two slots, and and I was going four days a week to school, so it, it, I didn't jump into it that way. But I did watch people, you know, get so involved in the station that they flunked out of Hofstra, and uh, and actually went in went into very good professional jobs in, in WABC and WCBS FM. Uh, in the engineering, in the engineering side of it, got first class licenses and uh, and had very good careers. So it actually was a good thing that they got involved in their in in what they actually wanted to do and didn't waste their time, you know, studying, you know, philosophy 07. Right. Right. So so at some point you, you graduate from St. John's and did you go into an accounting career and at the same time what was your your thought process about sticking around at WVHC? I went into public accounting and uh, and I just stayed doing a slot and remotes uh, at Hofstra. I just uh, kept I kept doing what I was doing because I had the you know I had the network there, uh, the friends uh, and new friends every year. New friends came aboard every year. Uh, new people to be friends with and to to help train. So I just I enjoyed doing it. Well, that was that was my next question. I, do you remember sort of a transition of 
you're not the new guy anymore. Now you're the experienced engineer and new people are coming in. Did you, did you notice that? And, and what did that feel like? Oh, it was, it was so much fun to watch the, the newbies uh, coming in and to, and to help and to help train them. Uh, you know, they had something they were interested in doing and uh, the ones that wanted to work on the air, they were the folks that came in to work at the station. Not everybody works on the air. Uh, and if you don't have the people that are in the admin part of it uh, and traffic and everything else and the logs, then you're not going to have a radio station anyway. But the people I mostly worked with were people who were in, on the engineering side. And it was fun to help train them and help sabotage them uh, during the training and uh, help them learn. Help. We taught, we taught, had one thing where actually in using vinyl, you get the crackling on the air sometimes when there's dust on the record and and we even developed, uh, I even developed a, a method of removing the dust from the record while it's playing on the air without disturbing the stylus. <laughs> wow, that's impressive. Yeah, no, I didn't. That's impressive. And, and, and no effect on the sound. No, no, no effect. It's like nothing was happening, but you would get the, you would get, you would get the dust off the, uh, off the surface of the record. Yeah, I guess I guess what I was trying to say is that you're not affecting the speed of the record, but the sound is getting cleaner because the dust is taken away. That's impressive. Right, right. That's cool. And all you had to do was like rip a piece of paper uh, sideways. It was easy. It was easy to do. Some people were really impressed by it, but now you don't have to deal with that because everything is a wave file, right? Uh, in a lot of cases, but you know, vinyls, vinyls made a big comeback, at least, at least at home. I don't know how it is at, at radio stations these days, but that's interesting. Um, you've, you've kind of answered this in, in, you know, talking about your motivations for going down to the station when you did, but I'd like to ask this question, uh, because obviously Hofstra radio meant a lot to you and we're having this conversation, but when you first showed up, when you decided you read that article, and you said, I'm going to go down to the Hofstra campus and make my donation. What did you hope the station would, would mean to you and what did it become? My, my thoughts was somehow getting involved in this, in this effort and uh, seeing what a, you know, seeing what another radio station looked like. I think I'd seen WGBV, seeing what another radio station looked like and getting a job there doing something. It was just, this, I was, like I said earlier in the thing, I was looking to sneak in. And and then you spent uh, how many years? 10 years or 10, so? 11, 10, 11 years. Station? I had slots. I did remotes. I, you know, That's those were exciting things. Remotes were even, even more exciting than running the board because, God, a lot of, so many things could go wrong on a remote on either end. I should have asked this earlier. Do you remember your first time doing a remote broadcast? What was that like? Yeah, uh, going over to uh, yeah, it was like getting getting hooked up. I mean, going over to the the football field. I forget what uh -huh. the stadium was was called uh, on the other side of uh, Meadowbrook Place. Uh, we'd we'd go over. We had a little booth. We had we had an obsolete board, the uh, Dynamote. It had it had. Uh, tubes in it and everything else we're going up there and we're hooking up to what we think is the line back to you know the little theater and then hoping that we we're getting on the air and uh and then hooking up the microphones for the announcers 
and then trying to figure out how to get the cues back and forth to uh, when we send it back to the to the studio and when we're supposed to go back on the air. Uh, that was that was a little hairy. When they went, then we learned, then we learned we developed a little system which was pretty obvious. But we we brought an FM radio with us, and so we could listen to what was going on when we weren't on, so we could mm. get the cue a lot easier as to when as to when we were supposed to take it on. But it was it was pretty scary, you know, because uh, you know you all you had was that board and what you hoped was the hookup. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, it's, it seems so so odd today when we have instantaneous communication through so many different means is that you're out there and you're not necessarily far away, but you're far enough from the station that you don't know what's going out there. That's that's sort of like uh, floating in space. You know, you're an astronaut and you're you hope you're tethered and and you're you're doing your job the best you can. Yeah, those those were those were interesting. And being on the other side, like one one time. You know, here they are. They're they're down in Philadelphia, you know, playing Villanova in basketball, and it's a Saturday night, and nobody ordered the line. Oh no! Or the line, the the order for the line got messed up or something. Whatever it was, here we are. Our crew is there, and we have no hookup to Philadelphia, and it's fifteen minutes before airtime. And we were with the luck of, of of Ma Bell at the time. We were able to get the right people to get the line. There was already an existing line from the broadcast booth down in down in Philadelphia to to the Philadelphia switching station. Okay, to get them to hook that up to a place in in New York City, the North River switching station, out to Hempstead. And out to us within like five minutes, you know, they were they were able to mm. do that, and we were able to get on the air. That never would have happened because <laughs> it was all patching and everything else. But we, but we lucked out. But it, here you are, you go all the way to Philadelphia, and you're not sure you can have the broadcast, and there's no other way to do it. <laughs> Right, right. And it's amazing you can remember the name of all the switching stations and and how the route went all these years later. I guess I guess it left an impression that that must have been a, a panic moment that that you somehow got through. Well, that's, we we got through it and that's what that's how you did it. It was all patch panels. There was no internet. There was I don't know how it's done now, but it's certainly not done like that. <laughs> right, right. But at the time, that was that was the, the the technology of the time. You had to learn it. You had to learn what could go wrong and and how to fix it and get ways around it. It makes you it makes you very creative and and very responsive, I guess, to any and all situations. It's good, and you can and you can use the, your problem solving in other parts of your life when you can get through those things too. Frank, this has been amazing. This has been so much fun. Um, thank you for sharing these stories. Uh, clearly, we're just we're just scratching the surface uh, on your story. So I've got more questions, and hopefully, we can sit down sometime and talk about some more stories about your your days at WVHC. Thank you. Thank you.